Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Kyle. The government is open again. The government is open again. And in fact, that's why we are here today. Um, On today's show, we're just going to have a quick discussion about how the government shutdown came to a close late Friday night and over the weekend. Um, And we're uh, excited to have a special guest, a reporter from The Hill, to do that with us. Um, So on Friday afternoon, President Trump caved and accepted a deal to reopen the government without securing any funding for his border wall. The agreement ended the longest shutdown in the nation's history, clocking in at 34 days or nearly two weeks longer than the previous record. But the agreement only keeps the government open until February 15th. And on Sunday, the president's acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, said it was certainly possible that the president would shut the government down again or declare a national emergency to secure funding for a barrier on the border. Um, And so to discuss this with us, uh, we're joined by Greg Toriel, an analyst for CQ's House Action Reports. Uh, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kyle. Glad to be back. Let's just start with how all of this came to a close on Friday night. Greg, there was a lot going on in Congress last week as it relates to this. Can you walk us through what happened legislatively last week? Uh, Sure. You know, actually, uh, before you got here, I just pulled up a list uh, from CQ's website of everything that had been happening during the shutdown. And the amount of just stuff that was happening on the Hill last week could have filled, you know, several weeks worth of activity. And they managed to cram it all into only about three days. If you actually want to look at what happened last week on Wednesday, uh, the House voted on um, a short term continuing resolution that would have uh, reopened the government through February 28th. And that was the 10th various spending bill that the Democratic-controlled House has voted on since they took over at the start of January. That same day was the day that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, decided to cancel the State of the Union address until the government shutdown was over. Um, which, you know, just just created another pressure point for the administration. On Thursday, the House voted on another continuing resolution, which is a a short-term spending deal for just the Department of Homeland Security. This is the department where the wall funding would go if it is provided. That same day, the Senate did its first vote on um, ending the government shutdown since the government shutdown started last December. The Senate voted on two bills. One was a proposal by the administration that would have uh, reopened the government while providing the requested $5.7 billion for the border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. The second bill was a Democratic proposal which was a short-term bill to reopen the government. Not not a full um, year of appropriations, but just a short-term agreement. Neither of those bills got the 60 votes needed in the Senate to actually get a cloture motion and advance. But interestingly enough, the Democratic plan got more votes total than the Republican plan. 
Shortly after that vote, uh, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham said he came to the Senate floor and said he was speaking with President Trump about a three-week short-term spending agreement. And that was what ended up becoming law on Friday afternoon uh, when President Trump said he would support a short-term spending deal that is going to last until February 15th. So, as I said, it was, you know, a lot of news crammed into just a few days on Capitol Hill. And that's not even counting other shutdown-related events like um, comments by Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross when he said he didn't understand why government employees that had been furloughed are going to food banks. And then on Friday morning, there were delays at New York's LaGuardia Airport because the FAA said they didn't have enough personnel at some of these high-level control centers. So just, you know, a, a lot going on in these last few days of the shutdown to, to bring it to an end. Yeah, Luke, what do you think finally sort of broke this thing and, and forced Trump to cave on the wall and accept the deal to end the shutdown with a promise for negotiations going forward. What do you think finally broke this thing down? I think there's this mentality in the GOP that the government is not important and that having the government shut down is fine and there are no consequences because the government sucks and doesn't do anything. And uh, what, you know, what Greg mentioned and then you add the IRS employees that were calling in sick and not you know coming to work and how long this thing had gone on for, it became clear that like actual consequences to people were occurring and were occurring beyond just government workers not getting paid. And so I think that is honestly what caused this to break. And from what I could see, a feeling that there was really no strategy here from the White House or Mitch McConnell, and that pretty much Trump was wall or bust, and the Democrats trying to offer counterproposals and them not being taken seriously on those, despite the legitimacy of the counterproposals, I think definitely hurt the ability of the president to hold his position. Let's bring the Georgia senators into this because I think it's somewhat illustrative the different tack taken by Senators Purdue and Isaacson as it relates to the the uh, dividing lines within the Senate Republican caucus and why some sides wanted to end this shutdown while other sides did not. Um, let's listen to two pieces of audio from both of our senators the last couple of weeks. Uh, first, let's listen to what Senator Isaacson had to say on the floor. There's only one thing we need to be doing, restoring the confidence of the American people in the United States Senate and the United States House. They don't have it right now, and we haven't given anything to hang their hat on. Not a single thing. We've been shut down now for, what, 23, 24 days? Now, I'm not a Johnny-come-lately, pardon the reference, to the issue of no shutdowns. I've been in the Senate and the House 20 years. I voted against five shutdowns, everyone I had a chance to. Shutdowns cost the government more money. They don't save the government any money. They don't solve any single problem whatsoever. And, and then when you mask them by only shutting down a little bit of the government like we are right now, we're really, not much of the government's really shut down, just the part that hurts the smallest income earners from our government. We're just doing the wrong thing, punishing the wrong people, and it's just not right. So all the speeches you're going to hear today, including mine, don't matter any at all unless we first of all get on the shutdown, 
correct the problem. All right. So that was Senator Isaacson. Uh, Senator Perdue, he took a very different stance. Uh, Here is what Senator Perdue had to say on CNBC a couple of weeks ago. You began this conversation, though, by saying that it was a disgrace, effectively, that the government has been shut down for as long as it has. Why not reopen it, have this conversation? I think there is a meaningful uh, and very fair and important conversation to be had about border security in this country. And I think both sides agree to that. I, I think the question is, who's trying to use what leverage over each other at this point? Andrew, you're exactly right. But let's put it in perspective. Had we had that conversation in August or September of last year, I would agree with you. But right now, what the Democrats are saying is, look, give us what we want, and then maybe we'll come back later in two or three months and talk about what you want. That's not the way negotiations work in the real world. I think all the, uh, but my understanding is that what the Democrats want is just to open the government. Well, I understand that. But then where's the leverage for the president in terms of getting them to move on the issue of the day? All right, Luke. So what do you think of the two different approaches taken here by our two Georgia senators? Well, I think it's just uh, yet another example that who you elect in positions matter and that David Perdue and Johnny Isaacson are very different senators that approach the job very differently. I think... Both of them are being pretty consistent to how they campaigned. Donald Trump was not the president when David Perdue started running uh, for Senate the first time, and no one really thought he ever would be. But David Perdue, when he ran, ran pretty clearly that he would be a strong supporter of very conservative positions and had really pro-Trump views on immigration. So his willingness to shut down the government and cause... Uh, many hundreds of thousands of employees to go without pay and all these dire consequences really is not a surprise to me. Same goes for Johnny Isaacson. Every time he's campaigned, he's been pretty clear that he is uh, a fairly pragmatic person and while obviously conservative, uh, understands the cost to not having the government open for a month. So I, I wasn't really surprised by either of them. The The only thing that really surprised me is that Isaacson wasn't louder. But I think for how timid senators have been to call out uh, President Trump on anything, Isaacson you know, did better than many of them. So I, I appreciated him doing that. And, and I think it's also important to point out that uh, Senator Isaacson was one of the six Republicans who voted for the Democratic proposal to reopen the government in the Senate. As I said before, that proposal didn't have the 60 votes to actually pass, but there were six Republicans who joined with their Democratic colleagues to vote to advance that legislation, and Senator Isaacson was one of them. Well, I think that was the first piece of evidence for the president that his position seemed much less politically tenable than uh, the the position the Democrats had taken because the Democratic bill did get more votes in the Senate. And since Democrats hold the House, of course, they're going to control what is ultimately going to come out of that chamber. Um, but Greg, what do we think comes next? So the Senate has appointed members to a conference committee. I'm unsure about the House, but uh, they have they've appointed their members too. Okay, so we've got members to the conference committee on both sides, but this is, you know, the agreement that was struck here to end the shutdown on Friday, that agreement only lasts to February 15th. Um, So do we think that both parties and the president are going to be able to come to a deal that averts either a another government shutdown or uh, the president issuing some sort of emergency order as it relates to the wall? Well, well, if there's one thing I've learned covering politics for the last few years in D.C., it's very, always very dangerous to make a prediction 
um, when, when President Trump is involved with anything. But to back up for just a second, the deal that was reached on Friday to reopen the government consisted of two separate agreements. The first was a clean continuing resolution through February 15th. It was a clean continuing resolution uh, because it did not contain any policy provisions. It simply extended the government funding for the shutdown portions of the government through February 15th. The second part of the agreement was an agreement to go to a conference committee for the Homeland Security Appropriations Bill. So the Senate passed a vehicle that's going to be used for the Homeland Security spending bill. The House didn't agree to that amendment, and now they're going to a conference committee. So in theory, the members of this conference committee now have until February 15th to work out a deal that will be amenable to the Democratic-controlled House, the Republican-controlled Senate, with the caveat that it needs 60 votes to advance, and is also something that the president will agree to sign. So these uh, members of the conference committee are going to have an interesting task ahead of them trying to craft border uh, security legislation, uh, border security funding legislation, that is going to be able to satisfy those three parts of the government. Interestingly enough, the members of the conference committee are all appropriators in both the Senate and the House. Appropriators on the Hill have the reputation of being, um, you know, as appropriators, they're concerned with dollars and cents more than they're concerned with taking, you know, then sort of more ideologically driven concerns, or at least that's that's sort of the traditional reputation of what it means to be an appropriator. Uh, so I think um, any agreement that comes out of the conference committee w- will likely be something that uh, they, they know will have the support in both chambers of Congress, because I don't think they would bend the conference committee on something that is too ideological to 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 not pass one of the two chambers of Congress. But uh, we'll learn more in the coming three weeks as we see what these conferees start discussing. Yeah, Luke, taking that as a symbol that we've got appropriators on this conference committee as opposed to some of the ideological hardliners, I mean, two names that are not on the conference committee list for the Republicans. There is no Tom Cotton, who has been an immigration hardliner uh, through much of his time in Congress. Um, There is no David Perdue, uh, who we've been talking about, who is a close ally of the president, uh, but who also sponsored uh, an immigration bill that immigration advocates uh, really hated that reduced legal immigration. So if they end up proposing a deal for the president that is, you know, fund something that the president can't really call his promise on a border wall, do you think that there's a chance that Trump shuts this thing down again? Absolutely. Uh, I would not be surprised if that's the route that he wants to take, uh, because I think he still doesn't understand why the Senate forced him to, uh, you know, sign this bill or, uh, you know, potentially veto it. But with that being said, I think there's no appetite from the majority of the Republican Party to do this again, and Democrats have absolutely no reason to cave. So I suspect that this conference committee is going to work on a 
good solution and try to be cognizant of uh, Trump's concerns and give him something that won't piss him off. But I, I would be pretty surprised unless they come up with a significant immigration reform bill from this, which I don't think they can or would. Uh, that we, we will see a uh, border wall in, in this funding. You know, I, I think it's one of those things where I'm going to have to agree with Luke that there I, I don't think that there's appetite on Capitol Hill among Republicans to go through another shutdown. Um, the Washington Post reported last week how at a GOP conference luncheon on Thursday, um, uh, one of the uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin basically stood up in this lunch and said at Mitch McConnell, you know, this is all your fault. And and I think that captures a sentiment that was prevalent on Capitol Hill. So, as I said, it's always dangerous to try and predict what President Trump is going to do or say or sign or veto. But I, I think it's safe to say that um, there's not going to be that much of an appetite for another government shutdown um, on the Hill in three in three weeks. Um, Luke, what do you think about Pelosi's standing exiting this first major confrontation with the president? There was a lot of uh, frustration with Pelosi, and I, I think a lot of uh, Democrats that were kind of annoyed that there wasn't another viable option to be the new Speaker of the House. Um, but Pelosi seems to have really dictated the terms of this surrender by the president. Uh, she canceled the State of the Union when Trump tried to insist that he would give the State of the Union per the original invitation. She held firm and said that she would not you know, that, that she was the ultimate decider on that and that she wasn't going to consider the resolution that would invite him to do that. Um, and then ultimately her position and the position of the Democrats that a shutdown is not a viable negotiating strategy seems to have won out here, at least in the short term. Uh, what do you think of Pelosi's standing um, as a sort of uh, new newly crowned leader of the resistance? I, I think this is just a testament to her ability as a leader and to why uh, anyone who was skeptical of her abilities really need to reassess uh, her position in the party. Um, I, I know just speaking from my own personal experience and being at democratic events uh, since she took over a speaker and uh, I was just at the democratic party of Georgia's uh, state convention, our four year big one where we elect our officers and like, since she became speaker, some people would, like, mention her in passing and be like, oh, we control one of the chambers of government. How great. And, like, we'd mention other, you know, rising stars in the party. Uh, but at the Democratic convention yesterday, I mean, all I heard was Pelosi, 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 Pelosi. And so I think it is quite clearly the opinion of party members and leaguers that uh, Pelosi handled this incredibly well and that she really stuck out a strong position. And... I, I think it was necessary because, you know, Donald Trump is not an experienced politician. Many of the uh, members of the House Republican caucus are not incredibly experienced. Many of them were not in Congress whenever she was speaker. And even further than that, many of them had never been in the minority before. And so I think uh, how the situation was handled on her part was the only way to handle it and making it clear to them that 
you know, there there is a new sheriff in town, and it's Sheriff Pelosi, and you have to deal with her and negotiate with her and come to a deal with her, and you're not going to get 100% of what you want anymore. And, you know, the same thing happened uh, to President Obama in 2010. So, I, I you know, I think it's uh, perfectly fair and was the only proper strategy to do, and uh, people recognizing that is appropriate. So, Greg, what is next for this Congress beyond this shutdown fight? There's been this really intriguing possibility for me that it, the Democratic takeover of the House and the the fact that the president's reelection bid is on the horizon means there may be an opportunity for a lot of uh, bipartisan action in this divided Congress. Uh, but Trump's cave on the wall, or at least that's how it's characterized by both his opponents and his allies, um, may complicate his ability to cut other bipartisan deals with Democrats in the House and Republicans in the Senate. So as an analyst who, who keeps a close eye on what goes on on the Hill, do you expect a really productive Congress in 2019? I think uh, the next two years are uh, going to be characterized by 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 some form of gridlock. We've seen that whenever there's been divided government before. Add into the fact that we're already... We're one month into the new Congress, and this will be the first week where the government has actually been open in that Congress. But we're now also two months, three months, however many months you want to say, into the 2020 presidential race. Uh, So you're, you're going to see that dynamic going into any election cycle when there's divided government of just, um, that's going to make compromise harder. As for what's next in the 116th Congress, if we take the fact that they have to figure out how to fund the government again in three weeks, I think the next big issue that House Democrats are going to start wanting to focus on is their big legislative reform package called H.R. 1. Uh, This is the big, giant bill that the Democrats have been speaking about ever since they uh, took back the House majority, um, and it includes all sorts of things ranging from overhauls to the, of the campaign finance system, uh, laws involving um, gerrymandering and voting rights, questions over money and politics, campaign fundraising, that sort of thing. Um, and this has been one of the flagship issues that the House Democrats have wanted to promote but with the shutdown fight, they really haven't had a chance to do that. So, so I think now that there's a bit of breathing space on Capitol Hill, um, I think that's going to be an issue House Democrats are going to pursue. As for the chances of that measure actually becoming law, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already come out against the measure. He says that it is, he called it, quote, a Democratic power grab. So it's, um, you know, I, I don't think there's that there's a strong chance of that becoming legislation, but it shows you the issues that the Democrats are going to start campaigning on as the 2020 election cycle kicks into high gear. They're, you know, this is a preview of they're going to be talking about campaign finance. They're going to be talking about voting rights. These are issues that aren't going away. Uh, something else that I think is going to be coming up fairly soon, um, starting in the spring is when Congress will actually have to start 
debating over the funding for fiscal year 2020, which starts at the end of September. Uh, so, you know, they've, they haven't even wrapped up the funding measures for this year, and already they're going to have to start debating the funding for 2020. Making that more complicated is the fact that the two-year budget cap agreement that the Congress has been operating under, um, you know, that ended this year, so they're going to have to start figuring out new budget caps, which is always, you know, it doesn't matter who the president is, it doesn't matter who's in the majority or minority, that's always an issue that creates all kinds of uh, partisan divisions on Capitol Hill between um, fiscal conservatives and uh, people that believe that, um, you know, that, that don't have this, that same problem with government expenditure. So that that's going to be an interesting dynamic as we go on. And this is just on the legislative front. Um, I, I don't think you need me to tell you that the Democratic House is going to be conducting a lot of investigations into the Trump administration. And I think those are things that will capture a lot more of the public attention than the legislative front. But it's important to know that while those events are going on, these debates over funding and other sort of more prosaic issues will be going on in the background. Luke, to wrap up here, are there deals that you think Democrats should cut with President Trump? You know, Mitch McConnell said that uh, his number one goal after the election of Barack Obama was to make him a one-term president. And when uh, when Republicans took over the U.S. House at the uh, first midterm for President Obama, they really lived out that goal up into his reelection in 2012. For Democrats, though, I think that their base views this a little differently than Republicans do. And there may be a little bit more room to make deals that don't violate core premises of the Democratic Party. But do you think that Democrats would be advantaged in trying to find places of agreement between them and the president? Or would they be better off uh, telling him hell no at every turn? It might be slightly naive of me, but what people say they hate about government is that nothing gets done. And that and that nobody can agree on anything. And that, you know, that is what I hear from people who pay attention to politics a little bit, but aren't deeply engaged in it. If there is room for uh, compromise or working together with the president, that I think we should take the opportunity as Democrats to do that, to show the country that even with Donald Trump, a person who we think is fundamentally unqualified to be president and should not be president, that it is worth working with him if there's something put in front of us that we agree on and doesn't compromise our values. I mean, I, yeah, I think a firm example of this would be allowing some border security funding uh, to uh, be allocated if the president was willing to do something for DACA recipients that is long-term and enshrined in law and doesn't have an expiration date. I would, you know, as as a Democrat, if I was in Congress, I would be pretty happy to vote for a deal uh, based around those terms. And you know, if there's anything else like uh, the criminal justice reform package that uh, we passed before the end of the previous Congress, or you know, that they're willing to work on us with, I don't see a benefit to us holding that up arbitrarily. Now that being said, we don't need to you know fall over ourselves trying to find deals to be made. But if if they're there and there's progress to be made, I think that. Uh, strengthens our case for 
being in charge because we can prove ourselves to be a responsible governing party. Uh, the question I was going to ask Greg, are there any issues where this Congress could potentially come up with a compromise solution and make some progress like criminal justice reform? Is there is there anything that is sort of in the murmurings in Congress that they want to try to accomplish together? Or is it basically going to be, you know, two years of, of them fighting over funding and investigations and they look at their watches as like, oh, shit, it's Iowa. Uh, some, something that everyone has loved to talk about on Capitol Hill since uh, 2017 has been uh, the, the much-discussed the much but never-quite-seen uh, infrastructure package. Infrastructure week. The mythical in- yes. infrastructure bill. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this has always been an issue of, of you know, an infrastructure package ha- has always been something that has been discussed as an area where there is agreement between... Um, the Trump administration and sort of enough of a bipartisan consensus in Congress. But hey, am I am I wrong to think that the majority of the opposition to that came from the House side? That was always my impression. Um, I I, I mean, like w- with anything as sort of broad and nebulous as an infrastructure package, um, you know, the devil is always in the details and. Uh, you know, they're just questions of, okay, you know, who gets the infrastructure? How much are we spending on the infrastructure? You know, I, I think it's safe to say that fiscal conservatives, um, uh, you know, were, were not as, um, as forthcoming on a big infrastructure package. So it's going to be interesting to see how the uh, Democratic House sort of changes that dynamic. You know, with any time that there is a looming election, and as our election cycles do become longer and longer, it seems, you know, it it always just does become a question where there is room for compromise. And, um, you know, I'm not going to speculate on what that is until until at least the bills start showing up in committees. Yeah, I think the other thing at play here is what is the president willing to get on board for? I mean, we've seen over and over again in legislative pushes led by Republicans, in legislative pushes that have some buy-in from both parties, that the president is not really one to be up to date on the details. And so to the extent that he has to lead his base into a place where they can come to an agreement with Democrats and not feel like they are selling out their own principles. He has to show some sort of mastery of the issues that are being discussed in a way of arguing to his base, this is something good that we should do, and here's why we should do it. And, you know, even the details of the wall he struggled with, he only recently seemed to back off his promise that it wouldn't be a tall, concrete, wall from sea to shining sea and that was a place where he might have been able to find compromise and support with his base and strike a deal that both sides could say that they were happy with but he only recently only at the very end of the shutdown came around to understanding that as a concept um so you know, on some sort of big infrastructure package where there's going to be a lot of spending on a lot of different things, there probably will be things that the president could point to and say, here, MAGA base, this is something really good for us. You know, this is us making great deals and and doing all of this winning. Um, But he has to understand that he's actually won something at some point. Um, And that, I think, is the biggest hurdle right now to big bipartisan, big, big ticket legislation. 
Um, so one final note before we go, um, Greg, I know you're kind of following some legislation um, related to some disaster funding that, that may have some relevance to uh, folks back home in Georgia. I mean, this sounds like it might be the next thing on Congress's to-do list. What, uh, what can you tell us about that? Sure, Kyle. So this uh, bill was introduced, uh, it passed the House a couple weeks ago, and it's several billion dollars in supplemental disaster aid, most of which is to uh, for expenses related to the two big hurricanes in 2018, uh, Hurricane Florence that hit the Carolinas and Hurricane Michael that hit the Florida Panhandle in south, uh, southwestern Georgia. Um, of particular interest to Georgia, I think, is that bill includes uh, more than $3 billion in agricultural funding. Uh, this is for losses to crops caused by the two storms. I think it's safe to say that a good chunk of that money is going to go to uh, uh, farmers in Georgia that were affected by Hurricane Michael last fall. And is that did that get delayed by this shutdown at all, or should that have been done by now? You know, it, it actually... So originally, there was a separate disaster um, funding measure that was included way back in December, but it was included in a measure that provided... Um, funding for President Trump's border wall, which was passed in the House when it was still controlled by Republicans as one of the last things they did before adjourning. But of course, it went nowhere in the Senate. And that was the same legislation that when it didn't get passed in the Senate, started the government shutdown. So during the middle of the shutdown, the House, now controlled by Democrats, passed this separate disaster funding bill. But at the last minute, the House Democrats put in language into this disaster funding bill that would reopen the government on a short-term basis to end the shutdown. Um, their their rationale being, and you know, I'm quoting now um, Chairwoman Nita Lowy, the Democrat uh, who uh, the chairwoman of the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, she said, "What's the point of opening of providing disaster funding if the agencies that administer the funding?" weren't open. Um, but of course, Republicans oppose this, saying, well, now this bill, because you've added this language, it's going to go nowhere in the Senate. So now that uh, the shutdown has been at least temporarily resolved, there's a chance this disaster funding bill might have a chance to move forward in the Senate now. All right. Well, that'll be something worth keeping an eye on, uh, particularly as it relates to aid for uh, our friends down in southwest Georgia who have uh, suffered quite a bit as a result of the hurricane last year. Uh, but for now, I think we are going to leave that there. Um, so, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, giving us all this knowledge you have attained on the Hill. Thank you all for having me. And Luke, uh, thanks as always. Yes, it was fun that we got to be here and talk about the government being open rather than continued deadlock. And I was happy that we were able to have you here, Greg. All right. And with that, we will leave it there. You're going to hear from us with our regular show later this week. Uh, but for now, take care and we'll talk to you later. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.